Welcome to Newborn to Teen and Everything in Between, the podcast from Bespoke Family. I'm Bex. And I'm Claire. Thanks for joining us as we tackle the ups and downs of life with children, helping you to get the best out of your time together. No rules, no judgment, just guidance. So grab a cuppa and let's get started with today's episode. We're absolutely delighted to welcome Cheryl Bedding as our podcast guest today. So welcome, Cheryl. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So we're just going to quickly introduce you. So you've got over 25 years experience in childcare and started working as a nanny. Feels like a bit like this is your life here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, moving on to work um, with vulnerable children and families and then on to advising and supporting childminders. Um, you then went on to teach, um, first as an assessor and tutor before qualifying as an early years lecturer, then an early years consultant and trainer. And now, this is incredible, deliver early years seminars and workshops, as well as webinars that have been watched worldwide. But obviously with your, oh, go on, what are you going to say then? No, I was going to say, yeah, I was in India last week. Right from my right from my little office here in London, it was very good. Oh, that's so cool! Um, and then with your other hat on, it sounds like you've got quite a few. You've got two children, one of which has additional needs, and you use that experience to share your specialist knowledge with parents, carers, early year settings. And we are so happy to have you here with us to talk about it. So, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your company, Early Years Collective, and what it does? Yeah, so the earliest collective was sort of born really out of a joint passion and, and joint interest for, for quality early years provision, quality early years environments. We kind of look at how we can enable, empower and equip early years educators to provide the best possible care, early education and environments for, for all children. So we know that you've got two children, William, who's 13, and Stanley, who's seven. So we would just, uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more about them both. Yeah, we'll do. Um, just in case William's hearing, he is now 14. He was 14 two weeks ago. So just, oh, sorry. Um, that's all right. No, that's fine. That would be very important oh. to him. He's now 14. I know, it's um, just, yeah. Yeah, no, so as I said, William and, and Stanley. Yeah, they're, they're very different characters as anybody, any parent with more than one child. They're, they're completely different. Yes, we can add William's additional needs into the mix, but regardless of that you know that they are completely different children one who is very he you know William describes himself um as a geek and he's quite outright proud of the fact that he's a geek um and he will sit and he'll play his games he's currently at the, at the moment he's arranging a, a massive um Dungeons and Dragons event round at our house in half term next week <laughs> really looking forward to it I am really looking forward to it you can tell can't you I know nothing about Dungeons and Dragons but he loves it um that that's his thing he loves history if you know anything about the Cold War if you know anything about World War Two, he will come and will sit and listen and talk to you for hours he doesn't much care for being outside he just wants to be inside um got his little group of friends and he's he's he, he plods along he does he does okay challenges but we'll come into those but he does okay um stanley complete opposite fiery redhead wants to be bear grills is getting really cheesed off at beavers because the only knife he's been given to play with so far is a butter knife and he wants to have a proper stanley <laughs> knife to, to, to play with and kind of carve wood and everything else um he adores spending time with his granddad fixing things building things loves football um 
just loves being outside. You give him, you know, an iPad, he'll watch it for a few minutes and then he'll want to go outside and, and do and make do and create oh, and that's invent. So, good. Yeah. so yeah, he will ask questions um, and he will want to know the answer to everything. Very, very different. Um, and keep me on my toes. Oh. So <laughs> what condition is it that William has? So William was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder when he was six. Um, okay. Back then, um, the diagnosis that he was given by our um, local CAMS department, the Child and Mental Health Service that we have here in our local authority, he was given the, the sort of subheading of, of Asperger's, which um, is kind of being um, disputed at the moment in terms of categorising autistic spectrum conditions. So we're kind of moving away from those subcategories. So if people ask me what condition he has, he had he is autistic. He has autistic spectrum condition. It was autistic spectrum disorder. Again, the terminology changes fairly frequently. Disorder kind of denotes that there is a problem, and 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 everything around his autism is a, is an issue, and and something doesn't work. Almost a disorder. So condition seems to be um, sort of a bit of a move at the moment um, around terminology, but it, it's changing all the time. So would you say that really? But what is happening is that kind of that terminology of Asperger's, because lots of people use the terms like high functioning autism or high functioning Asperger's. And that's now not no. being used as much. It's very much about being on yeah, the, because it's, the it's autistic almost spectrum, like, isn't it? And yeah, it's almost like describing, you, you know, if we, you and I were, and, uh, you know, we were having a discussion, Claire Bex, you know, one of you is, is cleverer than the other in one area we're not we're all human beings with all different traits i, I don't know what they i was gonna say yeah one of you i'll take that which one <laughs> in all areas yeah. um but yeah it's very much kind of you know uh, autism is 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 huge and there are um we all have our individual qualities within that it's like saying you know I'm, I'm human and I I have this trait and I have that trait well we're all so unique and we're all so different and there's a saying that says if you if you've met one autistic person you've met one autistic person because their traits their individuality their um expression their responses to things their un- they their uniqueness is is not is completely different to anybody else's there are comparable traits and we have to have those comparable traits when we're going down the route of, of a diagnostic uh, and that sort of diagnostic pathway but they are unique and we and and rather than categorizing those uh, because again if you if you i've had these discussions with william school and they say well he's high functioning yeah okay so he may be able to to manage and cope okay but he still has his struggles and high function almost kind of just masks some of those things and kind of forgets that he does have challenges. So, yeah, the kind of autistic sort of world and, and the autistic sort of society are kind of moving away from those subcategories to try and make things, you know, people understand that real kind of term of inclusion and that everybody is unique. So does William go to a mainstream yep, school? William is in a mainstream or... school. No, he's in he's in mainstream school. Um, he has his diagnosis, but um, in terms of uh, additional support, it is uh, varied. It is mixed because he he is not deemed, and I've been told this by several professionals before, he's not deemed bad enough for an EHCP, an education, health and care plan. 
an education, health and care plan is something that you would um, apply for, go for, um, appeal for, as many parents do, um, and that then um, supports the provision that they're in to receive extra funding to support those individual needs of that child. So he does he does have a, a plan in place at school. Where he goes to has a separate base and he is able to go and access that base if he needs to. The plan in place is there and we, I have a, um, a network, both of us um, have an SEN support worker um, within the school who we can talk to at any point who meets with us every sort of once every half term just to go through his plan is it still working for him is there any additional support that he needs and it really that plan is there to support the understanding of the teachers in how to best care and, and educate and, pro- and provide the best support for him in school so he is in mainstream and always has been in mainstream mm-hmm. but there's always been that additional support for him in place so what what were the signs that you saw when you first suspected that he wasn't the same as other children potentially for me it was it was one of those things it was almost like William's little quirks and I'd kind of say oh you know it's his it's his autism quirks before I'd even kind of gone down that route because I'd worked with children on the spectrum before and I'd um, supported parents of children who uh, were showing some of the signs or, or had a diagnosis I was kind of just starting to pick up on things things like loud noises so a, a, quite a common one for a lot of, of parents is, is the sort of public toilets and the hand dryers in public toilets um, and the impact that they can have um, on, on children's um, ability to process that sensory input. So loud noises, sudden loud noises. So if we were out and about and say an um, a, a ambulance or a police car came past, he kind of put his hands over his ears or there was a couple of times where he would just run he would run away because he needed it was that kind of innate fight or flight response i need to get away because i don't like this noise it's causing me real stress and real anxiety um couldn't cope with having his hair cut he actually hit the hairdresser at one point um yeah big oops uh we cleared a barber's because of the noise that he was making having his hair cut so we stopped that for a while until i found um a lady who was able to do it in in her house and then she did come to our house so he was obviously in his safe space to to be able to have his hair cut um he uh limited coordination struggled to use a knife and fork couldn't ride a bike um and a lot of the limited diet, um, it was all very beige. If food touched each other, he wouldn't eat it. So beans touched the sausages, he wouldn't eat the sausages because they'd been sort of touched mm. by the bean juice. He would have his obsessions. So back when William was young, um, it was octonauts. That was mm-hmm. a massive obsession for octonauts. Wanted to watch every episode, have every toy, do absolutely everything over and over and over again. And routines and um, sort of things had to be the same. If things deviated from what the plan was, he would struggle with it. And he wanted to know absolutely everything about everything all of the time. So if we were going out, where were we going? Who was going to be there? How long was it going to take us to get there? Are we going to take lunch with us? And there is, he still does that, still does that today. So you have to preempt a lot. If things were different, so if we went a different way to my, I remember going one a different way to my mum's house once. He was in the back of the car and he just started screaming, telling me that we were going the wrong way. And I was saying, to him, we're not going the wrong way. We just have to go the, a different. I think there was some roadworks or something was happening, and he was having an absolute 
meltdown in the back of the car because we weren't going where we said we were going because we weren't going then the normal way to Grant's house. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you're talking about lots of obviously traits that made you think, oh, actually, perhaps there's something more here. Because lots of children have some of those things that you've talked about, but aren't necessarily autistic. And so it's quite a hard thing to diagnose, isn't it? Especially initially when they're younger, because like all those things, I'm thinking, yeah, my children have done. I'm thinking, well, they've done that. But it's when it's all together, I'm assuming, and extreme. Exactly. It's about not just taking that one piece of a jigsaw, it's about pulling those pieces together and creating that picture. And it's when things are to the extreme, you know, yes, children have obsessions, you know, Fireman Sam, they want everything for Christmas is Fireman Sam, or they always want to watch Fireman Sam in the morning. But then when you add other elements to that, it becomes a a wider issue. And also it's about when those things that you are observing become an issue, So like having the meltdown in the back of the car, it was clearly becoming an issue. The loud noise when he ran, he nearly got run over. It becomes an issue because he's now bolting and and actually he's become a risk to himself. You know, quite often and, and quite early on, children work out how to behave in front of other people. So thinking about William when he was at nursery, a child at nursery would know that when the nursery teacher says come and sit down or let's tidy up or whatever else it might be we follow those rules that's what we do social convention kind of says that that's what we have to do we learn that quite quickly if the head teacher sees you you kind of sit bolt upright you know that kind of thing well we can't hide autistic traits if you're having a meltdown because you've been asked to put something away it's tidy up time but you haven't finished what you're doing and you can't understand because you're so insular in what you're doing and you're so focused on what you're doing it doesn't matter and I'll have a meltdown in the middle of Tesco's because you've told me I can't have something I don't care that everybody's watching me but a child at kind of three four might kind of start to realize well there's people looking and it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable but it, it happens all the time so we can't hide those concerns we can't hide those behaviors because they're our response to the stimulus that are happening around us because I know that having watched the programme with, and you're going to have to remind me, Claire, who are the people? Paddy McGuinness. Paddy McGuinness. Because his wife was talking about having been able to mask her symptoms, wasn't she? Do you think that children can also mask their symptoms or is it more of an adult? Because you're talking about, you know, convention and how you have to behave in a certain way. So do some children kind of... They were talking about girls, weren't they, particularly, that were able to not show those things under fives no they will display those behaviors where wherever but they do quickly learn how we behave in certain situations those autistic children will struggle to understand how we do things and where we do them because i have this feeling and i've got to get it out almost masking is is a definite thing and, and you quickly learn to mask girls do mask because they can like I can't remember her name now, Paddy McGuinness. Christine. Christine, yeah. And we have memory woman with us, Cheryl. I don't need a memory because Claire can remember <laughs> She's got everything. One. <laughs> yeah. And what she was saying, you know, she sort of shadowed what other people were doing in front of her. And girls can do that quite quickly. They will learn what to do in what situation. And they will shadow the person that they're talking to and they will follow the behaviours of the person that they will talk to because they pick up on those social elements. Boys struggle with that anyway 
we add autism to the mix and it becomes a more of a, a barrier so they struggle to mask but girls will mask and what you'll find if you've got parents listening and William has done this as he's got older as well he learned to mask because he understood at I think it first really started I'd really noticed it when he was I don't know, probably eight nine we'll go on to this if you want to but he started stimming as we arrived at school and we were waiting in the playground and then what I was also noticing is that when he came home he just exploded so stimming is that repetitive behavior and repetitive action those that view stimming often see it as a sign of anxiety and it can be a sign of anxiety and it can also be a sign of excitement and it's those high emotions that those on the autistic spectrum struggle to deal with so stimming it helps them self-regulate so for William he would pace up and down and he would just start making these almost kind of like superhero kind of pow pow noises and he would pace and he was doing it daily in the playground so all his all his mates would kind of gather together and start kicking a football around and start having a chat William would just be pacing up and down and in conversations with him it was his preparation to go into school and prepare himself for what was about to come prepare himself for those rules those social expectations those sensory stimuli that he struggled with and it was about him kind of preparing himself for it what would then happen if you imagine it's called the coke bottle effect if you imagine a bottle of coke and you imagine the lids on and it's been shaken up all day and then at the end of the day that lid comes off and explodes so William would then come home his lid would come off because he's now in his safe space and it would explode so he would mask all day at school he would come home agitated he would come home tired because it's so draining being at school his nervous system was completely depleted so he would come home and explode and have a meltdown at home so but he would mask because he didn't want to be seen as different he didn't want to be highlighted as he said I don't want to be seen as the weird one I know I'm weird I don't want to be seen as weird so he would mask do what he had to do to get through the day and then come home and then give me both barrels when he got home but it's so lovely because in a way you know how safe he feels even children who aren't on the spectrum of any you know sometimes school is a really hard place it's really overstimulating it's really can be quite tough dependent on friendships and everything else and so many of them can come home and do the coke bottle effect and I think we always say that it's a huge compliment when a child actually is able to let that lid come off because they feel completely and utterly safe with you and it must be so hard all day coping with that situation if you have a bad day at work you have to kind of control it but you can talk to people we've got other methods as adults I think when it's young children it's so challenging especially when they're trying to get used to actually what's going on with they don't necessarily completely fully understand what's going on either with them the way they're feeling and in a world where society doesn't always understand them and so they're battling all the time and a and quite frankly a school system that doesn't offer 
that real inclusive approach you know every child has to sit down and listen and and the only way that that the teacher sees that you're listening is if you're sat down and you're giving her complete eye contact or him eye complete eye contact and you're sat still when you're but what about the child that that isn't their way of concentrating that isn't their way of listening that isn't their way of focus of showing focus they actually can focus better if they're lying back on a beanbag and they've got a toy to play with and they can then completely hone in and focus but that's not the done thing that's not what we do it's this whole thing of eye contact isn't it everyone is about you no know, even with quite young children you no know, you have to look at me in the eye and you have to for some children that is near on impossible and ultimately if you're making them focus on looking you in the eye they're absolutely not listening to you because they're trying to focus on looking in your eye but it's so uncomfortable for them that whatever you're saying is completely pointless and actually they just need I've I've worked with so many children who they're rolling around on the floor or they're fiddling with something and then later on it's yeah I know I heard you and you're like yep okay great as long as you heard me it's fine and that whole I can't look at me do this it's you're you're it's I know why we do it because it's kind of that assumption that when we have eye contact we're listening but I think from my lecturing days, whenever you're stood at the front and you watch a sea of people, the minute you even look like you're going to ask a question, everyone's heads go down. <laughs> no one gives you eye contact. And you're thinking, you're, you're a group of adults. And so ultimately, if you're all panicking about it, yeah, exactly. then exactly. what does it feel exactly. like? And actually, it can be really intimidating. Really intimidating. Would you say there's something... And again, this might be quite controversial, but we've just talked about girls masking. And do you think with boys, it's kind of behaviour linked? So there's always this kind of an element of an assumption that boys behave in a certain way anyway. And so then when autism starts to get discussed, but yet for girls, it doesn't get noticed as much because they're, you know, some for some girls, their play is very different. And I think that then can make the diagnosis quite difficult can't it because if girls girls are masking Mm. but I also think it's difficult for boys because actually sometimes boys are kind of labeled quite young to behave in a certain way and then it's if it's not going how you expect it to go it then suddenly you know it wears poor behavior and wears really struggling to cope with a situation and I think a lot of little boys are struggling with the situation. Rather than being... Because actually boys are... Yeah, because they're being told to sit down and be quiet and listen at four when actually what's happening is that they're getting this huge surge of testosterone running through their body that is making them fidget and move. And at four we tell them to sit down and be quiet and listen to a teacher for story time or golden time or whatever it is for half an hour, you know, circle time, whatever. Yeah, I mean, there is a sort of train of thought that looks at the autistic assessment process it sort of looks more at boys it's linked more at boys behaviors than girls because girls tend and again it's not all girls tend to follow those sort of social conformities in their play girls again typically would go and play in the home corner and would play with the dolls and the push chairs and and skip around and and what well, that's what is kind of in their kind of body and then their system to to do 
boys want to go around roaring like a dinosaur and bashing into each other and shooting each other with nerf guns and battling with sticks and everything else and well that's not seen as acceptable it's not but that's what they have that innate drive to be doing and we stop it we prevent them from playing that because rather than actually saying well actually it rather than playing fighting with pens and sticks and let's go outside let's set up a battle scene outside let's you know but no we can't do it we can't do it stop it stop it stop it but we never stop the girls doing the play that comes naturally to them again social media is a great thing but can be quite a difficult thing as well and i think it you know i've seen comments i see my child lining things up and then it's this assumption that that relates to if you line things up and you're very ordered that's an assumption that it could be a sign of autism well it's interesting isn't it because actually my boy he had a fear of loud noises had to wear cotton wool in his ears in the school hall you just said that you know ben he was lining things up all the time and he had quite a f- he didn't like things touching you know he had quite a thing, few things that you've said but he isn't autistic. He is a boy who was just had those traits when he was little. And that's where it's so difficult, particularly, like you say, Claire, on social media, because you're watching these things and you're seeing people saying, well, perhaps these are signs of autism. And actually, they are, but they're also signs of being a little boy or a little girl in schemas and, you know, all those things. Who likes Audusk, exactly. Uh-huh. All, of those, exactly. all of those other things. And it's about building that bigger picture and, and, the, and these sort of traits and these repetitive behaviours that you see over time. You know, a child might like to line up their cars or like to line up their dinosaurs in order, but if that continues month after month and that becomes more of an obsession or you know it's something that they have to do every morning before they walk out the door or it's something that is it goes over a prolonged period of time and has other factors involved in it then you might consider looking at you know do we go down the routes of assessment but it might well be that your son just like order yeah and that's how we well, like not to, now. To, to play. Not now. No, <laughs> His bedroom, literally. I, I, I daren't walk in there in case I fall over and break <laughs> my neck. But anyway. <laughs> but I think it's that whole... It is taking it in the context that it's in. And sometimes, you know, that ordering and things is just part of their play, part of their development. It's when it starts to control a lot of their world isn't it and I it's so hard to describe because every child I've ever worked with who has you know um been autistic are so like you said at the beginning so different so different in all their little you know one thing I would say is their honesty is just the best in that they're just black and white a lot of the time and I think sometimes can definitely kind of just say and obviously again there's the verbal and non-verbal elements of it all it's so vast so hugely vast and I think people have lots of perceptions like I said potentially the flapping the work walking on tiptoes all those things I think are out there as signs and again it's looking at them as a whole picture and what does it build up to? But it's a really complex aspect, it is, isn't it? because we're dealing with a huge area that people know more about now. I'm asked quite a lot of people getting diagnosed, why are there more children being diagnosed with, with autism? And we were having a, a discussion just before we came on about 
the impact of COVID and some of the behaviours we're seeing and, and developmental challenges that children are facing. And, and certainly within the nurseries that we're working with, people are saying, you know, the children aren't able to do the things that we would expect them to be doing by this age. And, you know, in their, in their social development, in their emotional development and communicative development. But we also have to consider the impact of, of, of COVID on the behaviours and the developmental milestones that these children are reaching and be not a, exactly what you you were saying, Claire, not be quick to kind of go, well, they don't give eye contact, so they must be autistic. They can't cope with this loud noise, so they must be autistic. They can't do this, so they must be autistic. Sometimes it's not. And sometimes it might be that there are sensory challenges with regards to sensory perceptions and, and are they a sensory seeker? Are they a sensory avoider? But because they've got their sensory needs doesn't mean that they're autistic. A large proportion of children who have a diagnosis of autism do have sensory processing disorder, but they are separate as well. So we do have to look at things in a wider context. We have to make sure that we're partnering up really well with the families to kind of look at what's going on at home, what's going on in in the company of other people, because we know children are different in in different people's company we know that children can kind of turn it on and turn it off sometimes but if you're autistic the younger you are you would struggle to do that so I think we do have to look at the bigger picture we do need to make sure that we don't just hone in on those misconceptions and those myths that if they tick the no eye contact can't speak non-verbal and they don't like loud noises they must be autistic I mean William could give eye contact and he was extremely articulate at two and a half he could hold a conversation with a group of adults at two and a half. Put him with other two and a half, three-year-olds in nursery, didn't have a clue how to talk to them. <laughs> was on his own at nursery. Probably didn't really didn't want either. to either. No. Because... Why should he? No, no, I don't want to go and do that. Um, so <laughs> They're not playing what he wants to play on his... Precisely. Very kind of, I'm doing this and that's what I'm doing and I don't care that, that it's not what anybody else wants to do. And he's still like that now. We went and picked out some shoe, new school shoes at the, at, on Saturday and we were in the shop and we were saying, what about these? Yeah, I'll have those. Are you sure? What about those? Mum, they're just shoes. I'll have those. They're just shoes. Yeah, <laughs> he's, not, he's not fussed what anybody... And I went, are you sure? They're not great shoes. I don't care. They're shoes. It's not fussed what anybody else thinks. He doesn't care. Yeah, but that's amazing in a lot of yeah, ways, isn't it? I know. Yeah. I know. You kind of really think sometimes... Yeah, I'd love to got, have some of that. Yeah, the honesty... That I don't care what people think, I'm just me. I think that's just, there's an element of that that just makes you go, God, they're, we they're great. Need a bit fun. Of that, don't we? Yeah, think, absolutely. Yeah. So, how did you feel, Cheryl, when you were given the diagnosis? It's, it, I knew it was coming. I picked up quite early on and, and I knew it was coming. I knew that we were going to be given the diagnosis. But the day that myself and my now ex husband rocked up at the, the assessment centre, and the psychologist sat down and she was kind of talking about the evidence that she'd gathered from her observations, her assessments. She assessed him in the clinic. She assessed him at school. And the school also provided uh, observations and assessment. He was in, uh, it was sort of reception year one. So he was sort of six when he got his diagnosis. So she was going through all of that and she sat, sat us down and kind of said, yes, William does have, I, I can confirm that William does have, have autism. Cried my eyes out. Because as much as I had been saying, yeah, it's just William, he's autistic, he's on the spectrum, it's just his it's just his way, it's just him and his quirks. The moment a professional told me, I couldn't deal with it. I really, really struggled with it. Mm. And you you go through such a range of emotions, and I still go through a range of emotions now. You go through fear 
what does the future hold what's going to happen you get angry really angry with you know why me what you you feel guilty what did i do did i do something wrong has have you know did i eat something or drink something in my pregnancy by the way that isn't the case but you go through all of these different things we had a really bad birth experience with william and i think oh god if i pushed a bit harder or you know you go through all of these different things Mm. you go through uh, might be a real kind of hard one to sort of fathom but you go through bereavement those stages of bereavement because you you have to kind of almost grieve the child that you thought you were going to have compared to the child that you know you now have and you know five minutes earlier to get in his diagnosis he's still the same William that was running around the, the consultant room at the time he hadn't changed he was still him so yeah bereavement anger fear worry but then also you know it's kind of over the years you kind of I feel it's it, he has taught me how to parent and he has taught me so many different things about a bit about don't give a monkeys what anybody else thinks why should you it, it's made me a stronger person because you have to fight so flipping hard every for everything for everything you have to fight against the system so much so it's made me so strong but i still cry i still worry i still panic i probably still wrap him up in cotton wool and do things probably that i should probably allow him to do himself because you want to protect him because you know that that big wide world out there is horrible and it's society that doesn't accept him so what are your thoughts for his future i mean that's what you've kind of alluded to a little bit but what yeah i mean it's so funny (laughs) because here at home we've got um, stanley's currently in the little box room and it is literally a box and william's got the bigger back bedroom and Stanley will say, "When will you moving out? When does, when does he have old enough to move out? Because I want, because I want his bedroom. Because I want his bedroom." And I kind of think, "Well, I don't know. No. I don't know when. I mean, we know nobody knows when their children are going to move out. Of course, they don't. But you know, will he be able to go to university and and move out with that and go into halls? Will he be able to do that? Will he ever be able to? I mean, yes, he, he's independent. He can now walk himself to school." But in terms of of other things that other children his age are doing, you know, going out and meeting friends, heading on a bus and, you know, that really scares me because he still has a real limited awareness of danger. When we go out together as a family, if we're crossing a road, he is just completely away with the fairies because he knows that me and my partner are there to help him cross the road. When he can do it, he can. Well, clearly he can. He's done three years of walking to and from school, and he still keeps coming home, and he's safe. But so he can cross that one road. To be fair, we had to fight to get him into our local school because I knew it was only one road he had to cross to get there, and it was a fairly safe road. But I don't know. I don't know. You know, we look at all these amazing people. You know, just thinking specifically about some of the famous people that we know are on the spectrum and how much they've achieved and how much they're capable of doing and able to do. And you think you you kind of hold out hope that. He will be able to to live that so-called normal life, but I mean, who knows what that is anyway? <laughs> What's um, normal? Exactly? But who knows? Who knows? But I don't. I don't know. I don't know. He still heavily relies on me. He's still about eighteen months, two years behind his peers socially and emotionally. So that will probably remain the same. So I don't know. I don't know. He will obviously for him. He will have to find something that he loves and enjoys. 
because otherwise he's, he doesn't see any purpose to something that he doesn't have any interest in. So otherwise he'll keep getting called in by his manager, I think. What's his relationship like with Stanley with regards to kind of that brotherly side of things? What's that like? Is that... Are they close or do they... They will fight horrendously. They will... It's funny. Years and years ago, Stanley was probably three... And I remember William coming over to me because Stanley was in a group of people and he was having a chat with with some friends. And William came over to me and said, Mummy, how come he can do that and I can't do that? Oh. <laughs> because William couldn't get there. So it's very strange that William as the bigger, you know, he's twice his age, you know, was kind of saying, well, I, I need to learn how to do that. And so he's kind of almost learning from Stanley how to do that. They're very different. So I don't know whether or not that creates a barrier, but would they be different? You know, they're, they're, they're different human beings. They will love each other if, if you know, Stanley hurts himself. William will just rush over and want to protect him and look after him and vice versa. But if they want, they, they will often kind of, oh, well, should we go outside and we should, should we go and do this battle outside, this Nerf gun battle or whatever mm-hmm. it is outside? It won't last very long. Mm. William gets quite agitated quite quickly. So that kind of long sort of long lengthy playtime if you like William gets quite frustrated with with Stanley that he might not be following the rules or he did something he said he wasn't going to do or whereas he's just being an annoying little brother uh, William kind of can't quite cope with that so they adore each other they but they also need their time apart from each other as well very much so and you can tell when you need to take William out and do something with him and you need to take Stanley out and do something with him so yeah I think very often though like from from Stanley's point of view in a way his understanding and his probably empathy and everything else for at such a young age will probably be greater than a lot of children because of having William in his life because I think they can see probably how you parent William with like you say you have to parent differently you're a different parent to what you probably because you have to everything is much more kind of considered and thought about and everything else and that's not that everyone doesn't parent like that but I think you have to think about so many things that you would never normally think yes and you would never normally even think that maybe even just changing maybe a toothpaste or changing the the bubble bath whatever it might be that little thing can just turn a day on its head because that change was just that straw that broke the camel's back basically it's that well, why has that happened and I think seeing younger siblings or older siblings with you know younger siblings who have a condition that they're having to cope with I on, I do think I see an, a different empathy development because they are seeing it around them and they live with it yeah and also i think from from stanley's point of view he's also seeing the sort of shift between the older brother should be looking after the younger brother and and he does on a level but also when william is having his meltdowns with whatever it might be it's that oh i need i need to look after my brother he's he's struggling with something and stanley doesn't know about William's autism it's not a word that we we haven't sort of sat down and said oh just to let you know and just to inform you that your brother is you know we haven't kind of gone down that route with him but he sees William in situations that he struggles with and he will come over and he'll question and he'll get worried as to why he's doing that because he can't understand because to Stanley it's like well 
we go, we're on a boat, we're going under a bridge, that's what we do. Yeah, but William is standing up in the boat and he's just about to jump <laughs> off this little rowing boat that we're doing in Henley a couple of summers ago because he can't cope because there's now a bridge coming up and he's swearing and because that's what William does, he gets very agitated and gets very angry and, and scared. We had to turn the boat round and go back and then my partner and Stanley went off and had a great time on it. But that then scared Stanley, but also you know sort of had him looking at his older brother thinking well what what's going on you I don't understand why you're you're being like that so there is definitely that level of of empathy for people that respond to things differently to what you do because he's seeing it more often for sure so we're probably going to need to wind up a little bit I could literally talk about this for ages I didn't quite realize how much there was but I feel like there could be a part two coming to yeah I think so possibly more than happy to come back but what I think it's it's important to kind of to give a bit of a take home so what three things would you say to someone whose child has just received a diagnosis the first thing that I would say is that it's not your fault it is not something that you've done and yes, you will feel guilty. I'm not going to say don't feel guilty because it's an emotion that you will feel. But it's not your fault. It's not something that you have done or haven't done. It's not your fault. I would say build your network, build your trusted network around you. That could be, you know, close friends, close family. Also be aware that some of those close friends and close family might not understand at all. I had that with some friends and family that really just didn't quite understand. And some of it is about just their, their awareness and their understanding. And so it's just spent time kind of informing them and as to how things are. But build your network of support. It could be, you know, sometimes our support network can come from complete strangers. You know, face, there's lots of Facebook groups. There's lots of other support networks out there. The National Autistic Society provide great support. And I, I found really good support from my local NAS group just that kind of coming together with other parents that just get it mm. and understand and you know not only understand the challenges but also can understand those really really small wins that you get with our children and that how we have to celebrate those really really small wins you know even over over lockdown William learned to ride his bike well he was 12 13 you would expect that at kind of sit for us it was like oh my you know you know when you phone up everybody when your child first does a wee on the potty they've done a wee on the potty let's call grandma let's call the neighbors let's call everybody else it, you have to celebrate those wins because it's hard so celebrate the good things and just stay as healthy as you can stay as calm as you can try and rest as much as you can because the fight starts really and just make sure you look after you and you've got somebody looking after you because you'll be doing all the looking after. And in order for you to be the effective carer for your child at whatever level that is, you need to make sure that you have that person looking after you too, whoever that might be. But make sure you've got your go-to person, the go-to person that you can scream at, you can you know, cry with and, and laugh with as well because it is hilarious <laughs> and you have to have that person to to laugh with as well. You know, you you really do. So Yeah. Oh. Oh well thank you so much, Cheryl. I mean I have to say you're incredible. I have so <laughs> I much admiration <laughs> for you. I mean, no, gosh. It must be tough but also, like you say, rewarding and as having any child is, but you know William sounds great yeah. too. Thanks so much for 
he so does. He yeah. is a bit fabulous. He is a bit fabulous. And people say to me, you know, what would William be like if he wasn't autistic? And I said, well, he wouldn't be William, would he? Oh. He wouldn't be William if he wasn't. That's, that, that's part of his, his makeup. That's part of who he that's is. That's it. That's the truth. Well, thanks for sharing all of that with us. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And obviously, if you want to get in touch with Cheryl, we'll put in the show notes how to do that. Thanks ever so much, Cheryl. Since recording this podcast, Cheryl has gone out on her own and is now a Perion SEND training and consultancy. You can find details of how to contact her in the show notes. That's everything for today. Thanks for listening. If there's something you'd like us to talk about, we'd love you to get in touch and let us know. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Bespoke Family or head to our website. The links are in our show notes. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode and please give us a rating or review if you like what you hear. We're Bex and Claire and we'll be back soon with another episode of Newborn to Team and everything in between. See you then. Bye.